Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 69, Neptune's Empire. In the afternoon of March the 24th, 1916, the passenger ferry SS Sussex was traveling the waters off the coast of Dieppe. She carried 380 passengers and crew. The weather that afternoon was exceptional, with clear skies and just a hint of breeze. On board Sussex, some passengers were still at lunch, and others were strolling on deck, enjoying the unseasonable warmth. One such passenger was United Press correspondent John H. Hurley. John Hurley was one of two dozen Americans on board Sussex. He had taken the air at two o'clock, and as he weaved his way through the crowds, he noted there was little apprehension among his fellow travelers. Conversation was candid and free-flowing, with little, if any, mention of the war. Hurley managed to snag himself an open spot along the railing. From there, he lit a cigarette and gazed out at the passing channel. John Hurley was not looking for anything in particular. But as he gazed out on the water, something on the surface grabbed his attention. Had he blinked, he may have missed it. But from where he was standing, he could see a bright light on the surface, flickering like a dying candle. He thought nothing of it at first, assuming it was a buoy or some lost cargo. Like his fellow travelers, Hurley was well aware of the risks that came with crossing the channel during wartime. Although 11 months had passed since the Lusitania, naval, merchant, and civilian liners were still running into trouble. Mines were always the main hazard, but the more sinister threat, the U-boat, remained ever-present. Bemused by the afternoon sun, Hurley did not notice the pair of elongated tracks approaching Sussex. The torpedoes moved swiftly, and closed the gap before any alarm was sounded. Sussex was rocked by a tremendous explosion. Two torpedoes slammed into her port side hull. The impact severed the entire forward section of the ship, sending a large fountain of water over the side. Nearby passengers were engulfed in the wave and swept violently out to sea. Fortunately, her crew's quick response saved Sussex from further disaster. As survivors were organized on deck, Men below deck were laboring to keep her afloat. Aft bulkheads were flooded, and automated pumps roared into action. Seventeen minutes after impact, passengers were informed Sussex had been stabilized, and that the danger of sinking had passed. Within the hour, French trawlers were on the scene. Sussex, along with surviving passengers and crew, was towed stern first into Boulogne. The attack on the SS Sussex claimed the lives of 50 passengers. 100 more were wounded or reported missing. No Americans were killed, but when word of the attack reached Washington, it sparked another diplomatic bout between the United States and Germany. The Germans denied any involvement, arguing Sussex had fallen prey to a British minefield. But eyewitness testimonies, like John Hurley's, coupled with the torpedo fragments found in her hull, pointed to the obvious conclusion, that a U-boat had attacked Sussex without warning or provocation. 
The crisis lasted three weeks, finally coming to a head on April the 18th. In an ultimatum to the German government, President Wilson threatened to break diplomatic relations if Germany did not immediately stop the targeting of civilian liners. Wilson ended his note with a stern warning, writing, quote, If it is still the purpose of the imperial government to prosecute relentless and indiscriminate warfare against vessels of commerce by the use of submarines, the government of the United States is at last forced to the conclusion that there is but one course it can pursue, end quote. As they had after the Lusitania, the Germans blinked. On May 4th, Chancellor Betham Hulwig made a public declaration known as the Sussex Pledge. The Sussex Pledge promised sweeping changes to German naval policy. Henceforth, U-boat captains were mandated to follow maritime prize law. Commercial liners would no longer be targeted, and merchant ships could not be sunk without warning. The Sussex Pledge was a bitter pill for Germany to swallow. It defanged the U-boats to the point where Scheer had no choice but to call them back to base. It also did much to agitate civilian officials, who believed Germany had again cowered when threatened with American antagonism. Comparisons to the Lusitania incident were a dime a dozen. But as 1916 wore on, Germany's efforts to win the war elsewhere failed to materialize. The great battles of Verdun and Jutland did little to improve her position strategically, and her army was exhausted, having withstood combined offensives that summer. By January 1917, German naval strategy had circled back to the U-boat. On the 19th, Kaiser Wilhelm abandoned the Sussex Pledge, and authorized a second unrestricted campaign. Just hours before the torpedoes were let loose, Chancellor Betham Hulwig stood before the Reichstag and delivered one of the most fateful speeches of the war. Quote, No one among us will close his eyes to the seriousness of the step which we are taking. In deciding to employ our best and sharpest weapon, we are guided solely by a sober consideration of all the circumstances that come into question, and by a firm determination to help our people out of distress and disgrace which our enemies contemplate for them. Success lies in a higher hand, but, as regards all that human strength can do to enforce success for the fatherland, you may be assured, gentlemen, that nothing has been neglected. End quote. In deciding to unleash her best and sharpest weapon, Germany had made yet another desperate gamble. A gamble which I want to spend today's episode talking about. I aim to cover two things. The first is to highlight some of the key differences between the unrestricted campaign of 1917 to the first campaign of 1915, focusing on things like tactics, strategy, and operations. The second thing I want to do is shed some light on how the Entente and neutral countries reacted to the second round of submarine warfare, with particular focus on Great Britain and the United States. While the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare was a major reason for America's entry in the war, it is worth remembering that Wilson did not get his declaration until April the 6th, 65 days after the campaign began. So naturally, it is worth looking into what happened over those 65 days, before we begin a more detailed look at America's path to war in episode 70. And since I'm terrible at writing transitions, I'll just pause awkwardly for a few seconds before getting started. 
Germany's second round of unrestricted submarine warfare began at midnight on February 1st, 1917. Its launch ended a tumultuous two weeks, as Germany's political and military leadership scrambled to get their affairs in order. The fleet had been fully mobilized before foreign embassies were notified. Like the Schlieffen Plan, everything had to run like clockwork. Holzendorf knew the whole thing was essentially a large smash-and-grab raid. There were no reinforcements coming, and if Britain was not brought to heel by the autumn, Germany's future would be most uncertain. Holzendorf had done what he could to make his plan airtight. He consulted the experts and stood by their calculations. He believed the British would be caught by surprise, and be dealt such a blow they would have no choice but to sue for peace. On the eve of the campaign, Scheer had written, quote, Now, as never before, it depended on which one of us could hold out the longer. End quote. When the clock struck midnight, Germany had 134 U-boats in her fleet, 80 of which were deployed at any one time. They operated in four flotillas, the largest flotilla being the North Sea Flotilla with 57 boats followed by the Flanders Flotilla with 38, and the Adriatic Flotilla with 31. The smallest flotilla, the Baltic Flotilla, had 8. From an operations viewpoint, flotillas operated in areas called Declaration Zones. These Declaration Zones were declared off-limits, meaning any Entente or neutral ship caught in these areas could be sunk without warning or provocation. The largest of these zones encompassed the whole North Sea, including the English Channel, Irish Sea, and Eastern Atlantic. In the Mediterranean, one large zone stretched from Madeira to the Bosphorus. Having blockaded the world's trade routes, Holzendorf expected his U-boats to wreak havoc, and sink an average of 600,000 tons of shipping per month. This would not be easy by any stretch. But the Germans had two things going for them at the start. The first being that they had more U-boats than ever before. U-boat crews were experienced and had greater leeway than in 1915. The second advantage had to do with the Royal Navy. Put simply, the British still had no idea how to combat them. Now, that is not to say the British were caught by surprise. As we saw last episode, the Admiralty had learned of German intentions through the Zimmermann telegram. But there were additional signs as well. In November 1916, the President of Board and Trade warned the War Committee in London that a prolonged submarine campaign would devastate Britain's finances by the summer. Ever since the conclusion of the 1915 U-boat campaign, 738 commercial vessels equaling 2,300,000 tons of shipping, had been lost due to submarine and mining operations. Although British shipyards were building at peak capacity, the committee was alarmed to discover that they were losing ships faster than they could be replaced. This was the second time in as many months the committee had been put on notice. In October, Admirals Jellicoe and Beattie issued joint warnings about this very problem. This led Lloyd George to comment that Britain ruled the waves with a shaky trident. Another indicator the Germans were leading toward a return to the U-boat were the reports from the German home front, 
indicating malnutrition, starvation, and increasing health concerns among the civilian population. Torrential rains had devastated the 1916 harvest, and with coal and fertilizer having been appropriated by the army, most foodstuffs never made it to the cities. By 1917, the staples of the German diet, potatoes, beef, pork, eggs, bread, and butter, had vanished from shops across the country. A black market flourished. One historian suggests that up to one-third of all foodstuffs had to be purchased illegally. Milk, for example, could only be acquired with a doctor's prescription. To address the crippling food shortage, the German government turned to the humble turnip, that bland root vegetable which can be prepared in any fashion available, boiled, fried, mashed, you name it. The winter of 1916-17 became known as the turnip winter, as turnips became the staple of the public diet. Traditionally used as animal feed, turnips were an affront to German gastronomic diets. They provided only a fraction of the nutrients they were used to consuming. While potatoes offer 80 calories per 100 grams, turnips provide just 27. This, coupled with a freakishly cold winter and lack of coal, led to a spike in respiratory illnesses, with rickets, influenza, dysentery, scurvy, ulceration of the eyes, and hunger edema becoming common. Women's mortality shot up 51%, and children were kept indoors to avoid the cold. In a report, the municipal doctor of Chemnitz, a city in the German province of Saxony, described the condition of the city's schoolchildren, noting with dismay that cases both of anemia and tuberculosis were on the rise. Quote, not only has the whole mental development of the German schoolchildren been hampered in many directions by hunger, but the emotional life and willpower of the growing girls and boys have been menaced still more. The feelings of physical pain, hunger and thirst, physical exhaustion and enervation dominated all sensations. Quote. Now, I would be remiss if I forgot to mention that these troubles were not exclusively the fault of the British blockade. The German government's own mishandling of resources, including the recent implementation of the Hindenburg program, did much to worsen the situation. But to quote an adage as old as war itself, it is always easier to blame the enemy for your misfortune. Thus, the German public fully supported a second unrestricted campaign which was a substantial blow to Betham Holwig, who believed they wouldn't. The average person did not give two figs about the geopolitical consequences. It was food and warmth they needed, and the absence of both could be neatly tied to the British blockade. So with things at home reaching a fever pitch, the British knew the Germans would have to respond. I mean, what sensible nation wouldn't? But this did not change the fact that the Admiralty remained woefully unprepared to deal with the U-boat menace. As Churchill writes, the development of anti-submarine measures had not kept pace with the increasing intensity of attack. The defensive measures of 1915 had increased the number of armed merchantmen and auxiliary patrol vessels, but the problem of locating, attacking, and destroying submarines was still in a rudimentary stage. Thus, Developing some sort of effective anti-submarine measure was the Admiralty's number one priority for 1917. 
Previously, the most dependable way of destroying U-boats were armed merchant vessels known as Q-ships, and the underwater mine. Since 1914, British and German navies had underwent extensive mining operations in the North Sea and English Channel. Thousands of mines were deployed off key ports like Dover, Dieppe, Dunkirk, Calais, Falmouth, Portsmouth, and Boulogne. Mine warfare played to Germany's strengths, since Entente and neutral shipping employed a disproportionately higher number of ships than the Central Powers. German mines claimed a number of notable ships, including the 3,500-ton steamer Eritrea, the hospital ship Gallica, two Royal Navy destroyers, and the canard liner Alunia. In total, 550 merchant and civilian vessels were damaged or sunk, at a cost of 3,066 lives. Nonetheless, the Admiralty was caught flat-footed by the ferociousness of the new campaign. In February alone, U-boats sank 86 British ships, claiming 402 lives. One out of every four ships never made it to port, and the Royal Navy had no response. In total, U-boats sank 520,410 tons of shipping in February, just 80,000 tons shy of the expected average. To give those numbers a bit more context, U-boats in 1917 claimed as much tonnage in one month than the U-boats in 1915 did over six and a half. This brings up an important question. Why was the 1917 campaign more effective than the campaign of 1915? To answer this question, there are a few things we need to consider first. The first factor is trade volume. Simply put, the weight of trade in 1917 dwarfed that of 1915. As the war dragged on, Britain and France leaned heavily on their overseas possessions for manpower, supplies, and other resources. Effectively, more ships meant more targets for U-boat captains. The Germans, too, had added to their U-boat fleet. In 1915, they had just 35 operational boats. By 1917, this had grown to 134. Among these included long-range ocean-going submarines, known as submarine cruisers, which were numbered U-151 to U-157. Submarine cruisers could sail to the North American coast and back without refueling, giving them a range of 46,300 nautical miles. Interestingly enough, U-boat tactics had not changed much. As was the case in 1915, surfaced U-boats did most of the damage, as 80% of ships were warned before being sunk, and 75% were sunk by the deck gun rather than torpedoes. The third, and in my opinion the most significant factor, was the creativity of U-boat crews. While the Allies struggled with tracking U-boats, the crews themselves had gotten very good at evading their pursuers. Even with today's modern technology, locating a submarine in the open water is a tricky thing to do, and in 1917, even more so. Being able to track a submarine was one thing, but destroying it was something else entirely. 
When a U-boat found itself under attack, it would immediately dive beneath the surface. Crews would then jettison oil, bits of scrap metal, and broken furniture through the torpedo tubes. This would trick the hunter into believing the submarine had been destroyed. The U-boat would then sneak away unchallenged. So while the Germans got better at their craft, the Allies remained stuck at square one. The most effective way of catching a submarine was to trick it to the surface. This led to the creation of something called panic parties. Depending on the size of the crew, panic parties usually consisted of 5 to 20 men. When a submarine approached, the panic party got busy going through all the emotions of a mob scared to death about being sunk, burning fake documents and evacuating onto lifeboats. Meanwhile, remaining crew members would lay in wait, readying concealed weapons and explosives. When the submarine got close enough, all hell would break loose. Needless to say, these tactics led to some violent engagements between U-boat and merchant men. One such exchange occurred in the afternoon of February the 17th, between the Q-ship HMS Farnborough and U-83. Farnborough had been torpedoed by U-83 in the North Atlantic. Action stations were sounded, and the panic party evacuated to lifeboats. Farnborough CO, Commander Gordon Campbell, and a few engineering officers remained hidden aboard. U-83 approached Farnborough, and got so close that Campbell could see the hull just under the surface. Satisfied that no one else was on board, U-83 turned to the 25 souls on the decoy raft. The U-boat surfaced, and the captain emerged from the conning tower. At that moment, Campbell gave the order to fire. Farnborough's concealed 5-inch deck guns pumped 45 shells into the conning tower. The tower was blown apart, and the captain was decapitated. Eight members of U-83's crew managed to escape, but only two could be pulled to safety. The rest disappeared in the wreckage or drowned in the oily waters. Violent engagements such as this brought the level of intensity to new heights. While some captains abided by prize law, the most successful ones attacked their targets indiscriminately. February's most successful U-boats were U-53 and U-21. U-53 sank 16 ships that month, claiming 36,800 tons. U-21 claimed 13, including two off the Portuguese coast, for a total of 36,510 tons. By comparison, U-53 and U-21 claimed more tonnage in a single month than the entire fleet in April 1915. Meanwhile, over in America, President Wilson swiftly condemned the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare. On February 3rd, Wilson finally made good on his threat and severed diplomatic relations with Germany, expelling the German ambassador and recalling U.S. Ambassador Gerard. Wilson's decision came as no surprise to Berlin. Unlike 1915, the risk of war with the United States was now seen as a necessary risk. Admiral Holzendorf 
had prepared for this in his strategic paper at the end of 1916, in which he wrote, and I quote, We must have recourse to unrestricted U-boat warfare, even at the risk of war with America, so long as the U-boat campaign is begun early enough to ensure peace before August 1st, we have no alternative. End quote. Unrestricted U-boat warfare challenged the American government either to abandon use of the world's oceans, or take whatever steps were necessary to ensure the safety of American lives and cargo. Twice now, acts by German submarines had forced a crisis. First the Lusitania, then the Sussex. Both had led to prolonged negotiations in which Wilson attempted to force Germany to acknowledge American rights without invoking the ultimate threat of a war that neither he nor the American people wanted. Both times, Wilson had succeeded, but soon after his second inauguration, he faced much the same problem. As you'll recall from episode 68A, attempts to mediate a peace settlement had collapsed in December 1916. Wilson was dismayed that the two sides stubbornly blamed the other for the war, and were unwilling to meet unless certain conditions were met. This negative reaction produced a resentful president, who decided that the two sides, equally intractable, were equally guilty. In response, Wilson decided the main pillar of his foreign policy, neutrality, had to be buttressed. There will be no war, he told an aide. This country does not intend to become entangled in this war. It would be a crime against civilization if we entered it. Believe it or not, U.S.-German relations were surprisingly calm after the February 1st announcement. Even after Wilson broke diplomatic relations, things were not nearly as dramatic as they were after the Lusitania. On February 3rd, Wilson quoted at length from the text of the Sussex Pledge, issued in response to his own ultimatum of April the 18th. This time, the president took things a step further, threatening the possibility of war if and I quote, American ships and American lives should in fact be sacrificed by German naval commanders in heedless contravention of international law and the obvious dictates of humanity, end quote. For their part, U-boat commanders steered clear of ships displaying these stars and stripes. While Wilson's rhetoric made it seem like Americans were being slaughtered en masse, things were quite the opposite. A quarter of the ships sunk during the campaign's first week flew neutral flags, including 14 from Norway, 2 from the Netherlands, and 1 each from Spain, Peru, Sweden, Denmark, Greece, and finally, the United States. The lone American ship to be targeted was the 3,100-ton freighter Housatonic, which was intercepted on February the 3rd. Coincidentally, the same day Wilson broke diplomatic relations, the Housatonic was en route to Liverpool when she was stopped by the submarine U-53, commanded by Captain Hans Rose, one of the most successful U-boat commanders of the war. In this instance, Captain Rose had the good sense to abide by prize law. He ascertained that the Housatonic's cargo, a grain shipment bound for Liverpool, was clearly contraband. Rose, then allowed the crew to board lifeboats before sinking the ship with his deck gun. 
U-53, then towed the Housatonic lifeboats for an hour and a half, before leaving them in the care of a British trawler. By doing so, Rose ensured no American lives were lost, and in the opinion of historian Lawrence Sondhaus, possibly postponed an American declaration of war. Of course, we need to be careful not to get sidetracked by such tales of chivalry. February also saw some of the deadliest sinkings of the whole campaign, two of which occurred in the Mediterranean. On February 15th, U-39 sank the 3,000-ton liner Minus, overloaded with Italian troops bound for Salonika. 870 were killed. Two days later, U-65 torpedoed the 13,000-ton freighter Athos without warning. The Athos had just exited the Suez Canal bound for Marseille, carrying Chinese laborers from Hong Kong and French-African troops. The sinking took the lives of 754 of them. So, although American ships were being spared the worst of it, that did not mean American lives weren't in danger. On February 25th, the 18,000-ton canard liner, RMS Laconia, was torpedoed by U-50 without warning. Just 12 of the 300 passengers and crew perished. But, among the dead, were two affluent Americans. The Chicago socialite, Mary Hoy, and her daughter, Elizabeth. Both women were close friends of the First Lady, Edith Wilson. President Wilson was delivering a speech to Congress when news of the Laconia arrived. Former President Ted Roosevelt sought to turn the incident into a Lusitania for 1917, and attacked Wilson for failing to protect the lives of U.S. citizens. But the president was able to deflect much of Roosevelt's criticisms. While Democrats and Republicans were equally appalled by the behavior of U-boat captains, a formal declaration of war was not a step they were prepared to take. The Laconia had after all been a British ship, not American, and since 1914 had been outfitted with eight six-inch guns. Although the deaths of Mary and Elizabeth Hoy were regrettable, there remained a strong argument to be made that Americans traveling on armed ships were responsible for their own safety. In any event, the loss of one ship or another was soon overshadowed with what happened next. On February 25th, Wilson received a copy of the Zimmerman telegram. Now, we don't have any official record of what Wilson thought or said when he first read it. But as Barbara Tuckman suggests, the president showed much indignation. One of the few individuals to see Wilson that day was Undersecretary Frank Polk. Frank Polk had delivered the telegram at 8.30 that evening. According to Polk, Wilson did not question its authenticity for a moment, and was particularly upset about the plot having been launched while its authors were still talking peace to Wilson. The president wanted it made public right away, but his advisors, Secretary of State Robert Lansing and close friend Edward House, advised against it. They needed to confirm it was no forgery, or at the very least, allow time for Mexico to deny their involvement. Wilson had to play his cards right, and next week, we'll see how the following few weeks played out.
On March 1st, the telegram was published in U.S. newspapers. But the public's reaction was not as swift as you might expect. Some saw it as a forgery, while others dismissed it as an elaborate joke. Fueling speculation was the fact that Wilson could not publicly acknowledge how he obtained it, and all Zimmerman had to do was deny that he had written it. Instead, the German Foreign Secretary stunned the world with what he did next. On March 3rd, Zimmerman admitted to being the author. Any doubts about its authenticity were thrown out the window, and the American public turned in anger against Germany. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I would like to thank our most recent donors, Josh, Philip, and Ellis. Thank you very much for your kind contributions. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 69 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.